This morning, I want to uh, ask a special prayer. Um, I know we've done this the last couple of weeks, kind of a little unusual, but um, uh, this COVID thing continues to uh, spread, and uh, again, it's more folks that are connected with us. And I'm going to pull my phone out and read you a text. Uh, one of our folks that's been uh, with us in the last few months and has been serving on our security team, his name is Adam Elbrick. And uh, Adam uh, was SOR officer at uh, Arbor Springs Elementary School for several years. And I think he was doing it um, at the new Bass Middle School as well. But Adam is in Noonan, Piedmont right now with double pneumonia because of COVID. And he's fighting for his life. And he texted me this morning and asked me, he says, please ask your congregation to pray uh, for my family and for me that God would have his hand of mercy and grace upon me and heal me of this COVID double pneumonia on my lungs. Also, please ask that everyone specifically pray in the morning. The mornings are most difficult for me to breathe. It is extremely emotional and spiritual battle that takes place during this time. The enemy knows I'm at my weakest and does his best to keep me down, but I won't let him. Jesus still has a lot of fight left in me. So that's directly from Adam this morning. He has um, a beautiful wife, Yvette. And they have three kids, uh, Ethan, Benji, and Faith, who have been worshiping with us. And so I'm just going to ask us, and I know there's other people that y'all know personally that you're concerned about. So I'm just going to ask us to have a time of prayer right now. Pray for those folks, but specifically um, to to pray for Adam right now. Let's do that. Lord, as as we pray this morning, there may be somebody specifically on our hearts and our minds that we're concerned about. And as uh, as life rolls on every day, and we we think about the excitement of the of the exciting things of life, and people are going back to football games and going back to school and doing all these things, but yet there's still this this virus that's um, putting people down, and and people are dying. And Father, it is obviously a concern to us. But this morning. We do specifically bring to your attention, and Father, it's not like you don't know Adam, you know, you know his family, you know what's going on, but we, because you are God and because we are dependent upon you, as great as medicine and doctors and all those things are and technology, we still recognize our dependence on you for healing. You are the great physician. So right now we want to lift, in the name of Jesus, Adam up to you and pray for healing in his lungs and in this double pneumonia, that you will heal him. And it is... Interesting, Father, that he mentioned this is not only a physical and emotional battle, but certainly a spiritual battle within him as well. So we pray that you will allow your Holy Spirit to encourage him, especially in the mornings when he's dealing with this. But we lift him up right now. We pray for his wife, Yvette, and Ethan, and Benji, and Faith, his kids, as I know they're concerned and scared. But we just pray for him right now. And Father, we are grateful for those things that you use healing You bring healing through doctors, through medicine, through all the different things that we have available. But we know these uh, hospital people are overwhelmed right now. But we specifically just lift Adam up to you and others who are are struggling, Lord. But we just uh, bring them to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Thank you all for doing that. Well, we're going to continue our series called Big Picture Perspective as we continue to go through Paul's letter to the Jesus followers in Philippi. And I want to start with uh, asking you if you've ever heard of this guy's name, Samuel Pierport Langley. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Probably not. But in the, early of 20, in the early 20th century, many people were pursuing the dream of flying. That was something that a lot of people were trying to do. And Samuel Pierport Langley had what we assume to be the recipe for success. He was a brilliant guy, and he was chosen by the U.S. government to be given $50,000 by the War Department to figure out this flying machine. Money was no problem. He held a seat at Harvard. He worked at the Smithsonian Institute and was extremely well-connected with a lot of resources and a lot of people. He knew all the big minds of the day. He hired the best minds money could find, and the market conditions were fantastic to try to learn to fly. And the New York Times followed him around everywhere, and everyone was rooting for this guy, Langley, to come up with how to fly. But if that's true, how come none of us really know who he is? Because he didn't figure out how to fly. We know a few hundred miles away in Dayton, Ohio, there were a couple of guys that we do remember named Orville and Wilbur Wright who had none of what we would consider to be the recipe for success. They didn't have the money that Samuel Pierpoint Langley had. They didn't have all the um, uh, resources that he did. Uh, they paid for their dream with the proceeds, if you remember, from their bicycle shop. Not a single person on the Wright Brothers team had a college education, including both of them. And the New York Times followed them around nowhere. The difference was, of course, that Orville and Wilbur were driven by a cause, by a purpose, by a belief. They believed that they could figure out this flying machine, it would change the course of the world. And it did, didn't it? Samuel Pierport Langley was different. He wanted to be rich, and he wanted to be famous. He was in pursuit of the result. He was in pursuit of the riches. And lo and behold, look what happened. The people who believed in the Wright brothers' dream worked with them with blood, sweat, and tears. And the others just worked for the paycheck. They tell stories of every time the Wright brothers went out, they would have to take five sets of parts with them because that's how many times they would crash before supper. And eventually, on December 17, 1903, the Wright brothers took flight, and no one was even there to experience it. We found out about it a few days later, and further proof that Langley was motivated by the wrong thing. The day the Wright brothers took flight, he quit. He could have said, that's an amazing discovery, guys, and I will improve upon your technology. But he didn't. He wasn't first. He didn't get rich. He didn't get famous, so he quit. Now, all of that that I'm reading to you was taken for a TED Talk. A lot of y'all know what TED Talks are. You can see those on the Internet by a guy named Simon Sinex. How Great Leaders Inspire Action. But that's a great story. But as we look at our text today, last week we looked at Paul giving a part of his personal testimony to the people uh, through his letter in Philippi. And as we've talked about, Paul knew these people personally. He had started that church in Philippi. And now we know he's in Rome awaiting trial. He's in prison, even though it's house arrest. Uh, maybe not they're in prison and we might think, he's still not able to do and go where he wants to go. So he's writing letters to the churches that he's helped start, encouraging them, challenging them, 
uh, to stay on task. So Paul shared about his credentials, if you remember last week, that he was born, pure-born Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. And he enlisted all these accomplishments that he was born into. But they also listed these accomplishments that he had earned through his study and memorization and religious works that had made him a top Pharisee. He was on this path to religious greatness. But then Paul said... <clears throat> that he quit that old way, as we talked about last week. He went from being like or having the motivation of Samuel Pierport Langley to like one of the Wright brothers, if you will. He had discovered something much greater than flying. He had discovered something much greater than religious accolades. He had discovered a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And all his old pursuit in life was of no longer any value to him. If you remember, Paul said he considered it lost, even garbage to him now, to knowing Jesus Christ. He shared how he used to be in the profit and loss club of trying to earn God's approval through his works and good deeds. But he had given that up. He didn't want to go back to that old way at, at all. He was done with it. And uh, because he had been set free and knowing that his approval came through his faith in God, through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, and knowing that gave him a new motivation and desire to serve God and realize that that is what he was created for. So today we're going to look at Paul's next thoughts in this letter to the Philippians. He wants his readers to understand that although he has made this huge choice, this life-altering change in his life where he put that old past behind him, where he was very popular, where he was in a pursuit of being powerful, he put all that away because of his newfound love for Christ and knowing Christ. And he says, uh, even though I've done that, Paul wants everybody to understand in this letter, and even us today, that doesn't mean I'm perfect. I did not find perfection because I made this change in my life. But he was committed to pursuing and knowing Christ more and more and ultimately experiencing the resurrection, as we read last week, that Christ did. So in our text today, Paul makes clear that in spite of his circumstances, in spite of the circumstances of the culture that the Philippian church is dealing with, that they should press on, even now, even in the present, towards their future goal. And that was knowing Jesus and His resurrection. So I'm going to read for us chapter 3 today. I believe it's going to be on the screen. Thank you. You can look at it on your personal devices or if you've got your Bible. But listen to what Paul says. And again, remember, he's telling about, I've done all these things to change my life, and now this is what is of value to me, is knowing Christ. And he says this, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Jesus Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as, as I have often told you before and now tell you, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mindset is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, 
And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. So I want us to look at some of the lessons that we have in this part of Paul's letter here. Paul is saying that, look, I haven't taken hold of full salvation yet. That's going to come when I die and I resurrect as Christ did. And he's looking forward to that. But he has been justified through Christ, and he understands that. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has been justified. That is how Christ took hold of him. He says this twice. Christ took hold of me when he made the realization that Jesus Christ had died and resurrected to present Paul as a new person in Christ, as justified and reconciled before God. And that gave Paul a new purpose in life. It wasn't to get accolades, to be a religious person, a powerful person, like he was as a Pharisee. He says, no, I gave all that up, and now I have this real hope of eternity through the resurrection. Now Paul is committed to sharing that message so that it will take hold of others. Just as he's saying, Christ took hold of me. He goes, the way it took hold of me, I want everybody that I come in contact with to experience that being taken hold of. And Paul recognizes, though, a a universal problem for all of us in recognizing that. And it's called our past. It keeps us from pressing on. It keeps us where we are. It keeps us stagnant, not moving forward, but stuck. That's what happens about our past. Now, you might think that Paul is referring to his own past, which he is. And you might think, well, Paul was persecuting the church. He was an enemy of the church at first, if you remember. He was literally going from door to door and arresting Jesus' followers and saying, oh, if you're going to believe in that new way, we're going to arrest you because you're contaminating the Jewish religion. And so he was doing that, even to the point that ultimately he held the coats while they stoned Stephen, if you remember, in the book of Acts. So maybe Paul's talking about that. He's trying to forget his old past. But I think Paul's talking about something else, too. There's hurt and there's persecution that Paul has experienced as he's tried to get the gospel message out to other people. Everywhere he's gone, if you remember, he causes a riot. Everywhere he goes, every city, because people are enemies of the cross and they don't want to hear this message of grace. And so Paul's talking about, I'm putting my past behind me. Those sins I committed, my own personal failures, but also the hurt that has been in my life. I'm trying to put all of that behind me. And this part of his past could also paralyze him or make him want to quit. But he says, no, I press on. He says that several times. And I think part of the text this morning is is of enormous value to all of us today because many of us are stuck and not moving forward in our spiritual walk with Jesus, and it's because of our past, because of past failures. Oh, we're moving all right, and some of us can move at warp speed, doing all kinds of things, even within the church, but we still are letting our past keep us for moving forward. Our past is holding us back. Our past failures and our sins somehow come up. And also our past hurts that have been done to us keep us from moving forward as well. And Satan likes to remind us of those, doesn't he? He likes to remind us when we start to move forward, start to doubt if we can really trust God, just like he did in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Why would God want to justify me? I'm not worthy. Think about all that stuff I have in my past, all that baggage. Why does he justify those that hurt me? They don't deserve it. They're not worthy. But that's the whole point, 
None of us are worthy, are we? That's why we need Jesus. If we were worthy ourselves, we wouldn't need Jesus, but we aren't worthy. But we are extraordinarily valuable to God, and that's why he died for us. There's another illustration about a famous British horse jockey named Willie Carson was racing one day in a race, and he was happily leading on the rails, and he was close to winning the race, and about halfway from home, he thought he heard something at his back, as jockeys will do, and he looked, and he saw the shadow of another horse coming up behind him. Determined that he should not be beaten, he spurred on and was first at the finish line. And when he got to the end of the finish line, he looked looked again and realized that there was nobody even close to him. The closest horse was 15 lengths behind, and he had been racing his own shadow for the last part of the race. Now, we laugh at that, but how many times are we our own worst enemies? Because of our past, because of things that we've done. And again, it's not just things we've done, but things that people have done to us that we allow to stay a part of our minds. They get inside of our mind. We can be our worst our own worst enemy, and we can get inside our head, and Satan can get inside of our head and remember, oh, you're not good enough to do that. What do you mean you're going to get involved in that ministry? You know what you've done. And you say, well, somebody's hurt me before. I'll get hurt again, so I'm not going to get involved anymore. And that's how Satan works. I'm reading an interesting uh, book right now that Louis Giglio has out. It says, don't give the enemy a seat at your table. And it's a very interesting book. And it's about this very thing where we're supposed to be at the table with God like Psalm 23 talks about. He prepares a table for us where? Think about it. In the presence of our enemies. I see some of y'all mouthing that to me. And who do we invite at that table? Satan. And we let him pull his chair up. And we let him get inside of our head and remind us of our past. And we shouldn't do that. Paul says, I know I have a past. And some of it's not good. But I put that behind me and I press on. And we can press on too. God gives us motivation through the value we have. Our identity in him. When we realize we can press on. When we realize what our true identity is. Paul finally realized that. He was moving before but not really going anywhere. He was going places as a Pharisee, as a religious leader, but he really wasn't going anywhere. And deep inside his soul, he knew that. But now Paul was going all over the world, telling people about this man named Jesus who was the Savior and who had taken hold of him. And he says, I want him to take hold of your life like he took hold of mine. So Paul pressed on in spite of his past. And he pressed on toward the goal for which God, he says, had called him heavenward. So what goal are you pressing on for? And that's a question I think we have to ask ourselves all the time. What is our goal? And sometimes we don't even have goals because why? We're so caught up in our rat race of a world and our culture that we're just doing, 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 and we don't even really think about what are we really doing it for. Then Paul basically reminds his leaders that this is the view that all of us should have if we're going to be mature and grow, to recognize that Christ has taken hold of us for a purpose in our lives. And he says, even if you think differently now, God will make that clear to you. I didn't get that for a long time, Paul is saying. I was stuck in this religious things, doing all these religious things that made me look good on the outside, but inside I had no real relationship with Christ. I wasn't really motivated for the right things. And then Jesus made it clear to him. Then Paul continues to encourage his readers. He says, join with others in following my example. Now, Paul says this in several of his letters. He goes, imitate me. And when you hear that, you go, seriously? Isn't that a little arrogant, Paul, that you're telling people to imitate you? But he says, as I imitate who? Christ. 
If I'm obeying Christ, if I'm doing what I'm supposed to in Christ, then you can see me as a figure in your life, then imitate me. He's saying, when I'm following Jesus, it's not being arrogant. He says, take note, look around you at the people who are following Christ, that are living, he says, according to the pattern that we gave you. And Paul is instructing them, giving them instructions on how, what it means to be a Christ follower. He's literally discipling these people, and he says, when you see somebody doing that, follow them, imitate their behavior. <clears throat> to press on with joy to what God has called them to do, with joys in their lives in spite of their pasts. Now, nothing makes me happier in the church is to see somebody that is a longtime Christian that has amazing joy. And when you hear, and I've heard some of y'all's stories, when you tell your story, and in your story you have some stuff in your past, and you bring out that baggage and you talk about that, but then you have this joy that that is now your past. And that you've been forgiven, you've been redeemed, you are a new person in Christ now. That is a powerful thing when people hear your story and know that you've put that in your past. Paul has already mentioned earlier in this letter a couple of people. He says to the people at Philippi, he goes, you know who Timothy is? Imitate him. And he talks about what Timothy had been doing. He talks about Epaphroditus, who he's sending back to them. And if you remember, Epaphroditus had been sent to Paul over 700 miles from Philippi to Rome to encourage Paul, and now they're sending him back, and he almost died. And he says, this guy is somebody who understands what it is to be a servant of Christ. And so he goes, look around you. So the purpose of the church is to become a body together with others who are committed to pressing on together toward the goal that God has created us for. Like this morning, the fact that Adam is asking us to pray for him, he recognizes that we're a body of Christ here, and he's asking us to pray for him because he recognizes we believe in the same God, and we do that together. God has created a goal for us, and we do that better together. Paul then reminds his readers, as he said, he had that uh, even before, he says, I've been telling you this even before, and this time even with tears of this reality of, of the world and the culture we live in. He says, there are enemies of the cross. Now think about that for a minute. Who are people who are enemies of the cross? And I'm like, I can tell you one. You can probably name some names, can't you? And you think about people who disagree vehemently with us about our faith or, or maybe even our politics. But who are they? Enemies of the cross. Really evil people who hate Jesus and his teaching? Well, absolutely. There were people that hated Paul and they didn't want him to spread this. But I would believe that Paul is also talking about those who are opposed to suffering. Those who are opposed to hardship or are opposed or don't like difficult times. And that's a part of being a follower of Christ. And Jesus always made that clear. He says, in this world, you will what? You will have trouble. But rejoice, because I have overcome. But you will have trouble. Jesus had trouble. Paul had trouble. When I read the Old Testament, the prophets had trouble, didn't they? That was part of being a follower. And we've been talking about what I shared with y'all from a, a, another commentator, what is called cruciformity, becoming like the one who went to the cross for me. God is forming in us, but part of that is suffering, and we have to understand that. But in Paul's culture and in our culture, many who claim to be Jesus followers 
want to claim this health and wealth type gospel, an easy, free life from pain and stress. And if there's something going on in your life, well, it's because of sin in your life and these kind of things that people have these crazy philosophies about sometimes. But Paul, Paul says these folks have a destiny for destruction, whether they're really evil and an enemy of the cross or whether they say they're a Jesus follower but don't really understand what it means to follow Jesus. He says they're headed for devastation. And he talks about people who their God is their stomach. You go, what? Are they trying to get six-pack abs? Is that what he's talking about? Were there people like that in the first century as well? Well, he's talking about not necessarily their stomach, but he's talking about their appetites. And we understand what that is when we, you know, we, um, we should never go grocery shopping on an empty stomach. You ever heard that? Because you start getting a bunch of stuff you don't really need. But Paul's saying, we just, all these things in life that we want and in our culture, and, and we're in, in Paul in the first century, I'm sure there were advertisements, not like we have, but there were still advertisements, and people saw things in the market and in the culture that they wanted that connected with their appetites, not just for food, but whatever else they desired. And Paul says, these things have become your gods. And just as it was in the first century, there were things, false gods out there, that would get to our, their appetites. There's things in our culture that certainly get to our appetites. And this is what they pursue daily, Paul says. It consumes them, thinking that somehow this will satisfy them, not realizing that the God who created them and gave them life wants to have a personal relationship because all these other things are temporary and they will only disappoint them. Paul says their mind is on earthly things, which ask us, where are our minds right now? Where is your mind this morning as we think about what God is calling us to do in this world? Paul snaps us into a reality and says this. He goes, this is not our long-term home here on earth. And it's hard for us to get that because the thing that we're most scared about in life is death, isn't it? We're afraid of death. We don't want to go there. I don't want to get COVID because I, I don't want to die. But he says this is the destination along the way, ultimately heaven. He says our citizenship is not here. It is in heaven. And the people that Paul's talking about are very patriotic towards Rome. Philippi was a colony that was given to a lot of former soldiers and says, we're going to give you this for serving in the Roman army. So they were very pro-Rome. Even though Rome was very far away, they were very pro-Rome. But Paul's saying to those very people, your citizenship is not in Rome. Caesar is not God. God is God. And Jesus has died so that you would know who the true God is. So we should eagerly await our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is coming again. And Paul says, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. And he's trying to let the uh, Philippians know, as we, he's really saying to us today, all this stuff that's going on in the world, COVID and political unrest and all these different things, ultimately Jesus is going to bring everything under his control. And I know, he said, man, I, would, I wish he would hurry up and do that. But he is working in ways that we don't always see. I think about y'all's ministry. I think about all the ministries that we support. There's people working all over the world. Even in Afghanistan, there are Christians that are working right now. And we need to continue to pray for them because of these things that are going on. God is ultimately bringing everything under his control, even when we don't understand it and his timing. But he says we, he will transfer our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. One day we will have that. And that's what should motivate us. And Paul's reminding us that transformation is a process. 
It was in his life and it is in ours. And we have the resources to be transformed. We have our justification in Christ. The fellowship and support of the body of Christ, the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is given to us for us so that we together can move towards this goal that he's talking about. And then ultimately, he has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And I thought about that as... Even laying in the hospital there, Adam mentioned that this morning, that God, through the power of Christ, he's speaking to Adam, even in what he's going through right now. It's a very powerful thing. That's why I wanted to read you all that specifically from what he said. So, will we be like Samuel, Pierpoint Langley, and have all these resources at our you know, service, but yet we're going nowhere with it because it's really not what we're motivated for. Or will we be like the Wright brothers or more specifically like Paul and recognizes the resources that we have available to us right now and be able to press on towards the goal that God has called us 